Please turn to the book of Hosea, an Old Testament book. If you can find Ezekiel or Daniel or Jeremiah, Isaiah, you're in the neighborhood. The first chapter of the book of Hosea. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I should ever forgive them. But he said, I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you're not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel seemed like a contradiction to what he just said. And yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the, land, like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people. It will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. What a word. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Hold this place, your Bible in your lap, please. Regardless of how dark the judgment of God is, the, the announcement of the judgment of God. It is amazing how he always ends his message with a word of hope. Now the story of Hosea is familiar to everybody here perhaps. This man of God, this prophet, took a wife by the name of Gomer and they had three children and she went astray. First there was private infidelity and then public prostitution and finally, she was sold into slavery. And God came to Hosea, the prophet, one day and said, I want you to go down to the marketplace, down to the market where everybody can see you, and I want you to buy her back and take her back like, you, like nothing had happened. What, an, ama what a, an amazing love that a man not only would but could go down into the public place and buy this woman back from prostitution and take her home like nothing had happened. But the story of Hosea is really incidental to what the Bible is teaching. There's some much deeper truths under the surface than just the message of infidelity and forgiveness. For example, God is revealing to us His relationship 
with his people. This is my relationship, he's saying, with my people. A relationship like the husband with the wife. The people of God in the Old Testament are, is Israel. In the New Testament, it is the church. And God is saying, this is my relationship. These people are my bride. And he talks about this long-lasting, unique, unbreakable relationship of intimacy. He reveals his relationship. And this story reveals the nature of sin. Our problem is we take sin too lightly. Sin, every sin to God, is like infidelity in marriage. Now we categorize it, we put some under here, a little bit less, and some a little bit greater, but to God, every sin is seen like a husband or wife would see infidelity with his spouse. Every sin is like that to God. And what he's saying is that even though you have sinned, and that sin is a terrible thing, I still love you. And then he reveals the price of forgiveness. Forgiveness to us may seem easy. To God, it's not easy. I mean, to us, we, you know, we don't have to mourn, and we don't have to do penance, we don't have to sob, you know, God forgives us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we walk away and say, well, it's pretty easy. Not easy to God. I tell you, it is never easy for God to forgive sin as easy as it is for a man to forgive unfaithfulness to his wife. As a matter of fact, what this book is about is the price God is willing to pay for forgiveness. It cost him his son. And on the heart of God is this great wound every time someone sins. That's the price of forgiveness. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the sins that break the heart of God. Now, I know it's not possible for us in this time to name them all, but I have chosen three that are representative of all of those sins that break the heart of God. And I want you to turn to the 8th chapter. That's where we'll look. Now, I've told this story because I want it to establish the fact that, that this story teaches a deeper truth, and that's what we're going to be dealing with a few Sundays from now as we go through this. And beginning today, the sins that break the heart of God. The first, when you and I treat lightly His Word, verse 12 of chapter 8, though I wrote for Him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. That Hebrew construction is, they are regarded as a stranger, as an alien, as a foreigner. I have written 10,000 letters. I've written 10,000 laws, and they treat them like a foreigner. Now, anybody who knows me knows that I don't like to write letters. Now, one reason I don't like to write letters is because nobody can read them. My penmanship is terrible, and they make fun of me when I write them letters. I've actually had people call me on the telephone and say, I've got your letter here in my hand. What did you say? You know, and so I'm trying to remember what I wrote. But if I'm going to sit down, and it takes a great deal of pain on my behalf to write a letter, if I'm going to sit down and write somebody a letter, I, at least I want them to read it. Now, I, I want you to fess up this morning. How many of you read that stuff I send you from it? Occasionally, you know, I'll dictate a letter and my secretary will print it out and it comes out. Now, now I want to confess up. I want to fess up. 
How many of you read those letters I write you? Huh, three or four, you know. Come on, fess up now, be honest. Most of the time when you get that stuff, you, you, it's like junk mail, right? I mean, that's, uh, we might as well be honest. And what do you do with junk mail? You just take that junk mail, you throw it in the trash. Now, when I get, are you tired of getting junk mail? I mean, when I get junk mail, what I use that junk mail, I use the envelope to write myself notes on, you know. And when I get through with the notes, I toss it in the trash, never open it most of the time. And somewhere there's somebody saying in some pulpit or in some office, well, if I'm going to write that turkey something, at least I want him to read it. God said, I have written you 10,000 letters, and you treat it like junk mail. And I've written my word 10,000 times, and you treat it like a stranger. Now, in that land, in that time, a stranger was a foreigner, an alien. I mean, he could live there, but he couldn't be a citizen. And he didn't have a voice in anything. He couldn't, if there was an election, he didn't have a vote. And I'm, I'm assuming that sometimes they'd show up at the city council meetings and and maybe an old boy there, a stranger, an alien, he might decide he want to have a voice, so he'd get up and he'd say, now I think it ought to be this way. And, and probably somebody's going to say, sit down, shut up, nobody cares what you think. You're an alien here. You don't have a voice. You don't have a vote. Now we're glad for you to live in this country of ours and you make yourself home here, but you don't have a say-so in what goes on around here. And this is what God is saying. He's saying, you carry your, my word around in your hand or on your arm, some of you have even dared to read it. And a few of you have committed it to memory. But when it comes down to a decision to be made, when it comes down for, a, for an election, my word doesn't even have a vote. And you carry my word around on your arm, this big Bible you carry around, and, and you wouldn't be caught without one. And yet, when it comes down to a time of making a decision, I have no voice in what you do. You take my word lightly. We break the heart of God, secondly, when we take lightly His worship. And so he says in verse 15, 13, chapter 8, As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh. Now I want you to underline this next statement because that's the significant part of this. They sacrifice the flesh and eat it. Now here's what's going on here. You see, when... When the people brought the sacrifice, it was the, it was the perfect lamb out of the flock and the, the best calf out of the stall and the best part of the grain out of the harvest. And, and when they brought it as a sacrifice, the only person who could eat it was the priest. It was kind of a perk and his job is kind of fringe benefit. And, and so what, how, how God paid them, you know, how, they, how he sustained them and, and, and compensated for their work was that they got to eat the sacrifices and and the people were not allowed to eat the sacrifice they brought. And for a person to eat the sacrifice was to desecrate the sacrifice. It was to be, uns it was to be selfish. It was to say to God, you know, hey, I don't care what you say, you know, I'm going to eat this sacrifice. And what they would do then was they'd just start bringing a bunch of sacrifices and then they'd eat them. I can see them sitting around somewhere, you know, in some room, you know, and... This old boy saying, he's saying, wait a minute here. That priest works one day a week. He gets my best lamb, and I get nothing. And, and, and that priest, you know, he's down there performing his duties, and, and I'm bringing the best calf out of the stall, and he gets it, and I'm bringing the best grain from the harvest, and he gets to eat that. 
And he's thinking to himself, now that don't, that don't wash with me. So he thinks to himself, I know a way whereby I can do both. I know a way whereby I can worship God and satisfy the needs of the flesh, the lust of the flesh at the same time. I know a way where I can satisfy God and satisfy myself at the same time. I'll just bring the sacrifice and then I'll eat it. Now, I'm going to do a little meddling here, and so, you know, some of you may want to turn off your hearing aid, but I'm gonna, like in West Texas, I'm going to hold right up next to the cotton for a minute here. I'm going to try to draw an application from this, from modern day. Now, how is it possible for a person, there's some strong implications here, how is it possible for a person to worship God and, and have that worship of God become the occasion to satisfy his own flesh? Well, in one way, A.W. Tozer talks about it this way. He talks about the worship of the great God entertainment. And he says, for most, in most places, in most churches, entertainment has taken the place of the serious things of God. And he says, most churches have become kind of poor theaters where fifth-rate producers hawk their poor wares. I've even heard this place referred to as the stage. And the way we measure, and, and we need to be very careful about this, we need to be very careful when we measure worship with how much fun we had. Man, we really worshiped the Lord this morning. We had a great time. Used to, when we'd go out of church, the way we'd measure the value of worship was how guilty we felt. Now we measure by how much fun we had. And so if we can get a lot of hoopla and a lot of hype and a lot of entertainment going on. We can come to church, call that worship, and be satisfied with our own needs of the flesh at the same time. We need to be very careful about that. It happens when the preacher walks out of the pulpit and he's thinking to himself, I wonder how I sounded this morning. I wonder if they liked me. So that his offering rather becomes something that satisfies him rather than encounters God. And, we need, and, and that happens when the choirs perform, their offering becomes more of a performance than an offering to God. So that what we like about it is that it made us feel good when they sang, see, or, or, or when the person preached. And, and we forget about what we say, you see. Uh, let, let me see if I can... You, you know what I'm talking about? You, you know what you see what I'm saying? At, at, at all? I mean, we come in here and we sing, you know, songs like... You know, we like these heaven songs, you know, and we want the singer to lead us in these heaven songs, uh, 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 marching to Zion, and when we all get to heaven and we feel so, re we feel so great about singing those songs about heaven, but if after the service somebody came up to you and said, you have terminal cancer and you're going to die in three months, you know what you'd say? You'd say, oh no, pray for my healing. For you see, we forget about what we, what we just said, you see. So that the act of worship itself becomes a means by which we gratify a, a need of the flesh. Breaks the heart of God. And there's a second implication there, I think, and it's even a more powerful one. What God is saying through Hosea the prophet is this, that He's saying, you folks think that, that I'm going to be satisfied, all I need is just the offering, and then what you do with it after that, I don't, I don't care about. It's like, uh, you know, toss God an hour of worship on Sunday, that's all He cares about anyway. If you'll come to church one time a week and, 
and throw God and toss God an hour of your worship at church and Sunday school, he'll get, you'll get Him off your back. He'll leave you alone. Because after all, all God is interested in is that we come to church once a week on Sunday anyway. That's kind of the idea some of us have. Let me tell you something that's going to shock you. That doesn't make God happy. For God is as much interested in what happens when you leave as He is what happens when you come. And when we take the sacrifice and we offer it to God and that becomes an occasion to satisfy our own desires, it breaks His heart. One last thought. Not only does this sin of taking lightly His Word and taking lightly His worship break God's heart, but when we take lightly His work. Now there are two or three ways in which that can happen. And I want you to get your Bible now and get, get the bifocals there and focus. And I want us to take a look at some verses of Scripture here. First of all, when we seek earthly help in times of trouble, rather than seeking God, we take His work lightly. When in times of trouble we seek an earthly help rather than God's help. We take lightly His work. Now there are three verses. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off, that, that in other words, that they might be protected. They bought people off in bribery. Look at verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. Now turn back to chapter 7, verse 11. So Ephraim has become a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt... And they go to Assyria. Now I want you to see what's happening here. When Israel got in trouble and times got tough, what they do? They went running down to Egypt and formed an alliance. And when their security was threatened and their safety was imperiled, rather than, to, rather than turning to God, they turned to man. Let me ask you a question. When, when times get rough for you financially, where do you run for help? Do you take a, make a beeline to God or to your banker? Or when times get really tough for you and things get difficult, where do you go for counsel and where do you go for help? Do you go to man or you, do you go to God? You see. And so here is Israel and things are tough for them and rather than turning to God in faith and trust, for divine intervention, they made a mad dash for Egypt. Why? Because they believed, watch this, because it is a subtle sin of which we're all guilty, because they believed that the help of man was more sure than the help of God. Now there are two reasons why that happened. One is because they had misplaced God. Now, the interesting thing about verse 14 of chapter 8 and that word forgotten, it's the word misplace or mislay. In other words, they had misplaced God. Now, I hate to wear glasses worse than anything. The only reason I wear glasses is to see. And 
That's the only reason. Now, I've got bifocals, and I can't read a lick without these glasses. And, and so I put them on. I don't really need them to, to, to see out from here, but, and, you know, I, I put them on and try to wear them because if I ever take them off, I forget where I put them. Is anybody ever, you, you ever do that? And, I, and I'm always misplacing my glasses. I find them occasionally. I've sat on a few, you know, busted them up. And, and, and I keep Dr. Clay busy just bending them back into shape. And, and, I, and I just go around the house, you know, anybody seen my glasses? I've misplaced my glasses. The crowning humiliation is one day I was looking for them and had them on. Now that is a, that is a crowning humiliation. Now, what, what is happening here is Israel saying, now, hey, he said, where did I put God? I've misplaced him. I, you know, there was a need over here, and I had him over here one time, but I don't know where I've misplaced him. Oh, well, I can't find him, so I'll go down and get some help from Egypt. Listen to me carefully. If you've misplaced God, you better seek for him till you find him, because man won't do you any good. And so the psalmist said, Wait upon the Lord. And he does that twice. He says, Wait upon the Lord. Because even though you might prepare the horses for battle, it is God who gives the victory. What he's saying is this, there is no safe, secure help outside of God. You put your confidence in man, he'll fail you. They misplace God. And the second reason why they, they sought man's help rather than God's help is because of this unconscious decadence that was present. Now look at verse 9 of chapter 7. He says, strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Is anybody here this morning that has gray hair and don't know it? I mean, that's the most unnatural thing in the whole wide world. I mean, if you have gray hair, you know it. I was saying to old Cunningham the other day, I said, Cunningham, you're old as I am, you don't have any gray hair. He said, yes, I do, and he showed me some. I mean, he knew he had some. If, if you don't notice that you've got gray hair and how many, I've got about 2,000. If, if you have gray hair and, you don't, and, and, you, and you, you're going to see it in the mirror, and if you don't see it, somebody will tell you. I'll guarantee you. Some smart-headed kid will, will come up and tell you. Now, a lady was telling me the other day, she said, I was trying to teach my child who was the pastor of First Baptist Church, and, he, and all of a sudden he said, Oh, you mean that old gray-haired man that likes to sing? Kind of a smart-headed kid. Now, if, if, you don't, if you don't see your gray hair, somebody's going to tell you about it. I promise you that. It's the most unnatural thing in the whole world to have gray hair and not know it. Now, what he's talking about is not gray hair sprinkled on their head. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is a decline in morality in the land. What he's talking about is the lessening of the lowering of moral standards. What he's talking about is that sin has come to the nation and they're not aware of it. Now, it's tragic when sin comes. It's even more tragic when we don't know it. There's nothing wrong with being gray-headed. But there is something wrong with being gray-headed and not know about it. There's nothing wrong, you see, with that. And what, is, what God is saying is this, that the reason why you've taken off down to Egypt is because sin has its hold on you, and the tragedy is you don't even know it. When we make light of the work of God, not only do we seek man's help in time of trouble, but secondly, we become unstable in our righteousness. Look in chapter 6, verse 4. 
What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty, if you have a King James, it's goodness. For your goodness is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Now he's not talking about Israel's badness. He's talking about Israel's goodness. He's not, he's not saying Israel, let me tell you what's bad about you. He's, telling me, he's saying, let me tell you what's bad about your goodness. For you see, even Israel's goodness was bad. Because it was like the morning cloud and the early dew. Three things about that. First of all, morning clouds and early dew are beautiful. You ever looked out in the morning and seen that dew on your grass, your green lawn? Looks like God just poured some liquid diamonds out there, didn't it? If you've ever been up early jogging, I thought I'd drop that in, let you know I'm early up early jogging. If you've ever been up early jogging, you know that those early morning clouds, just little wisps of clouds around in the sky at daybreak, when that sun starts coming up, it, they're just beautiful. Beautiful purple hues and red. Let me tell you something, there's nothing any more beautiful than people on their knees at an altar making a commitment to God. There's nothing any prettier than a person on his knees making God a promise. There's nothing any more beautiful than that. That's a beautiful thing. Be most beautiful thing, whole wide world. Second, it's useless. It's useless. I want you to hear me now. Listen carefully. No harvest was ever made with morning clouds and early dew. They're useless to the harvest. And if all you have with God is a promise you've never kept, doesn't matter how beautiful it was, it's useless. And if you've been on your knees a hundred times before God, making a commitment to Him, and there's no follow-through, it's as useless to God as morning clouds and early dew to the harvest. It doesn't make a flipping bit of difference to God. It's useless. And it's short-lived. Well, you see, when the sun comes up, it always does. And when the heat begins to bear down, and it always does, those morning clouds and that early dew, rather than stand against the heat, they just dissipate. They disappear like vapor. So if you've made a commitment to God, and you've not followed through, and it's a beautiful thing, it's useless, and it's short-lived, because the sun will come up, and it will get hot, and when the heat comes, is it, is it going to be permanent? And so when we take God's work lightly, it's like our goodness, our love, I've got in my prayer list that I pray for, Lord, make my love longer, stronger than morning dew and early clouds. One last thought, please. When we take lightly the work of God, it means that we forget God in the day of prosperity. Now I want to read three verses and I'm out. Verse 14, chapter 8, For Israel has mislaid his Maker and built palaces. Chapter 5, verse 4, flip back to that please. Their deeds will not allow them to return to the Lord, to God. In other words, this is what he's saying. He's saying they've gotten so busy and they've gotten so prosperous and God has made them so wealthy and so prosperous 
And they've got so many things to do now. They are so busy. They don't have time for God. Their deeds will not allow them to return to God. They've gotten so much, they're so busy. They don't have time for God. Well, make time. Look at chapter 13, verse 5. That's the last one. I cared for you in the wilderness. If you've got a Bible like mine, his little word out beside says, knew. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Now watch this. It is a fact of life that man cannot stand prosperity. Check me out. No civilization has ever survived prosperity. Now civilizations have survived poverty. Check me out. No civilization has ever survived prosperity. That's a kind of a gloomy sound for our nation, isn't it? Because when the barns are filled and when the need is no longer there and when everything's going fine and we've, the bills are paid and things are going great, we forget God. We forget Him in the day of prosperity. And I have preached this, especially at Thanksgiving. God said when He brought him into the new land, He said, now be careful because you're going to live in cities that you didn't build. And you're going to dwell in houses that you didn't erect. And you're going to drink from cisterns that you did not dig. And you're going to eat from vineyards that you did not plant. Be careful lest when you are full, you forget me. In the day of prosperity, we forget God. When the barns are filled and the bills are paid and the health is good, and the family is happy. We forget it. Now that's bad enough. But just so that we'll understand the heinousness of that sin, God holds that in one hand and He holds up beside it the fact that He didn't forget us in times of drought, in times of trouble. And He's saying, now look, when things were the worst for you, I didn't forget you why do you forget me when things are going great? And he said, Hosea, I want you to go down to the marketplace and I want you to buy back that woman that no man wants. And I want you to come to that woman when she's reached the very dregs, the bottom of everything. And no man desires her anymore and she's absolutely worthless and I want you to go there and I want you to purchase her again because I want everybody to know that I loved Israel when nobody else would. And I cared for Israel when nobody else cared for her. And I want you to show the world that when Israel got to the place, where my people got to the place, when they were absolutely worthless, they weren't worth loving, I loved them. And they weren't worth having, I had them. And when they weren't worth caring for, I cared for them. I want you to see how terrible it is when I didn't walk out on you when you were worthless, but you've walked out on me when it's going good. 
You know what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? He said, I loved you in the wilderness. When you were a scum nation down there, and you weren't even a nation. It's what he says. You weren't even a people. And you were just some folks wandering around out there in the wilderness that nobody cared for at all. I, I loved you even then. Even then. You going to walk out on me now? When things are going good? You going to turn your back on me now? When you got it made? I had a friend out in West Texas, such a dear man. He, he was so good. In fact, you've heard people say, well, he's too good. Well, he, he really, well, he's just too good. He, worked, he, he ran a bank. I suppose one of the best friends I've ever had in this earth. Times got tough and in the oil fields and people lost money. Crops were bad and things were rough. And so the bankers had to kind of bear down, you know, and times were really bad. And some people got down on old Duane. All of a sudden, this wonderful man, from some people's eyes, was public enemy number one. They got down on him. And I was talking to a guy one day in the coffee shop, and this is what he said. He said, let me tell you about Duane Herman. He said, when I didn't have a dime, that man stood by me. And he said... He got me out of some scrapes just because he trusted, he, he, he stood by me and I trusted him. And he said, I'm where I am. He was a successful businessman. He said, I'm where I am because that man stood by me when nobody else would. He said, you think I'm going to walk out on him now? You think I'm going to talk about him? You think I'm going to label him as public enemy number one? He said, no way. He said, man, I'll lay down my life for that man. He stood by me when nobody else did. Let me ask you this. You're going to walk out on God this morning when He stood by you when nobody else would. Let me tell you what that's like. That's the worst sin you could commit. Let's pray together. Father, We know that there are these sins that break your heart. and We're sad and sorry for it. Forgive us. Taking your word lightly. Give it, giving it no voice in our decisions. Taking your worship like that's all you want. And just come sit in a church. Be entertained. We can do what we want to the rest of the week. Forgive us. Most of all, Father, forgive us because we've taken your work lightly. And we've said, Lord, yeah, you've done so much for us, but what have you done lately? And we've walked away and we've looked for help from other people. God, forgive us. And I pray this morning that there will be decisions that are made in this place this morning that would glorify you and make you happy. For I ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. There are three invitations this morning. Please look here. I ask you this morning to get up out of your seat if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hands and your life in Him. Trust in Him 100% for your salvation. None 
No trust in you, all in Him. Come this morning to place your faith in Jesus. Think He'll save you? Gives you His word, He will. Come this morning to join this church. It's a good time to do that. While the going is good, remember the Lord. That's what the author of the Ecclesiastes meant now. When he said, now in the days of your youth, remember God. When you're young and healthy, happy, and things are going well. Or maybe you just need to come this morning and say, I, I, I'm, I'm not living like God wants me to live my life. It's not under His Lordship. I want to come and make that commitment that I can keep. Would you do it while we stand to sing? We invite you to come.